Don't let diaper rash come between you and your baby. Diaper rash can be one of the worst experiences your little one has to go through. Keeping their delicate skin healthy and happy shouldn't require a spatula to apply thick and goopy treatments that can be just as irritating and uncomfortable. When my oldest was little, she would get the worst diaper rash. It left me feeling so desperate to help her while also wanting something gentle on her skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant free of dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide. It was developed by a mom who is also a doctor. When she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash, she let nothing get in her way. You can use just a small amount of Dr. Mom Butt Balm to help soothe your baby's skin and feel confident that you are making the right choice. Dr. Mom is committed to providing an ultra-premium formula for moms that won't settle when it comes to their little ones. Soothe and restore with active ingredients being dimethicone and petrolatum. You can find more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com or find it on Amazon or Walmart.com. Hello, hello. You are with the VBAC link with Megan and Julie and our friend Jennifer today. We're excited to have her sharing her story. She is a CBAC. And for anyone that doesn't know what a CBAC is, it's cesarean birth after cesarean. She was going for a VBAC and was getting so, so close and had a turn in a complete different direction. And so we're going to be talking with her today about her story and also splitting up the difference between emergency C-section and a crash C-section. A lot of the times those are kind of jumbled into one, just like a non-emergent and emergent is jumbled into one. So we're going to talk about the differences there. So we're really, really excited. And of course, Julie has a review of the week. So I'm going to turn the time over to her to read that. Yeah, I'm really excited for this story. We've said it before and we'll say it again. We are not here to share just the sunshine and butterfly VBAC stories. And so if if that's what you want, and that's okay if you want that, then this is probably not going to be the right one that you would want to listen Mm -hmm. to. But we encourage you, if you can, to take a minute to ground yourself and try and listen to the harder stories because VBAC you know, TOLAC, trying a vaginal birth, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't always go as planned. And sometimes a repeat cesarean is necessary. And sometimes it's just wanted. And sometimes it's an emergency, like a true emergency. And so knowing the Mm -hmm. difference, like Megan said, is really important between an emergency cesarean and a crash cesarean. But this is sure to be a really vulnerable and raw story. And I am so grateful to Jennifer for being willing to share that story today. But but before I do that, before I keep talking, (laughs) I'm going to share a review from Hello Miss Bliss. And doesn't that take you back to like your high school days, Megan? Miss Bliss, Bliss. Say by the bell. (laughs) Like totally there. All right. So Hello Miss Bliss. I'm going to read your review. And the title is Invaluable. She says, as soon as I had my C-section, I knew I wanted to be back for my future births. I searched other birth podcasts for VBAC stories specifically, and then one day I found the VBAC link. The information, the honesty, support, and evidence-based advice that Julie, Megan, and their guests provide are invaluable. I make my husband listen. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I make my husband listen and feel so much more empowered and secure in my decision to VBAC. 
I'm eight weeks pregnant now, and I can't wait to share my VBAC story next year. Thank you so much for this amazing resource. Okay, now we got to do what we do. We calculate the dates. So she was eight weeks pregnant on November 1st. So it's two months. Oh my gosh, no, it's like September right now. She's probably say, yeah, just had her baby. Like when um, we're recording. July. If November. She conceived, oh, yeah. I don't know when. December, January, February, I'm counting on my fingers right now. April, she probably May, has had her June. baby at this point. Yeah. yeah. Hello, yeah. Miss Bliss. If you had your feedback, let us know. We would love to hear your story. <laughs> yes. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link Podcast with Julie Francom and Megan Heaton. VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. Hey listeners, today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed therapist. It's a great way to connect in a safe and private environment. I so wish that I had someone to talk to all of those weeks leading up to my birth when I was experiencing the anxieties and fears, and trauma from my last birth. For Julie, it took her months to get into a counselor in her postpartum period. With BetterHelp, you can start connecting in under 24 hours. Send a message to your counselor anytime, and you'll get a timely and thoughtful response. Plus, you can schedule weekly phone or video sessions. They help with anxiety, sleeping, trauma, relationships, self-esteem, anger, family conflicts, depression, you name it. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting an additional counselors in 50 states. They are giving you 10% off for your first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash feedback. Again, that's betterhelp.com slash feedback. Join over 1 million people taking charge in their mental health. Okay, well, we are so excited to get started. I do want to just give you a fair warning before we turn the time over to Jennifer. If you've been following our stories and my Friday updates, you know that I am completely under construction. Like, my entire <laughs> top floor, which is what's above me, is under construction, and we had to rip up all of our tile, and they're relaying, or they're prepping the floor to relay it right now. So, you may hear hammering, you may hear sawing, you may even hear a dog bark, and I'm sorry. So and there's always the warning. chance of crazy kids between Megan has one home and I have three home, and my two-year-old's currently resisting nap time, which will be coming up in about 45 minutes. So yes. it, it's just you, you get what you get, and yeah. sometimes sometimes we're yep. good, and sometimes we have we're some. We're yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just wanted to give that fair warning. If you hear the knocking, it is – I am guilty. It's me. But, Jennifer, we're so excited to have you here, and we can't wait to dive into your story. So we'd love to turn the time over to you. Thank you all so much. I guess I'll start with my son, with my first section. He was, I went into labor at 40 weeks, five days. I had a really great pregnancy, um, no real issues. I labored at home for 21 hours with a doula, finally went to the hospital, and I was only one centimeter. So that was very, like, discouraging, but, you know, I walked around. They, they ended up keeping me because I was able to get to three. And um, long story short, at about 35 hours that I had been in labor, 
I was about eight centimeters and my doctor said my cervix was swollen. So she said, we'll try some Pitocin, but my baby didn't handle the Pitocin well. So they stopped that and I wasn't really progressing after that. So at about the 43 hour mark, they, she said I had to have a section. There was no talking her, you know, letting me have any more time or anything like that. She said it was just too swollen. It wouldn't have happened. So we had a C-section and it was, it went very smoothly. You know, my doula was able to be in the room with us. She took some great pictures after delivery. He was perfect. And we had a really good um, hospital stay. And, you know, it was just, I knew after having him though that my first question was, okay, can I have a V-back? And of course, the doctor at the time was like, we don't even need to be talking about this right now. You just had a baby. <laughs> so, you know, I, life went on and it was okay. I wasn't too sad. You know, I knew I would have kind of like a redemption and be able to try for a V-back in a few years when we decided to have another child. And um, we were hoping for that, you know. A few years later, um, we were ready to have another baby. I had a miscarriage. And then we had about 13 months of infertility when we finally were able to start an, an oral medicine to help us get pregnant. I got pregnant the first month and I knew that I needed a VBAC friendly doctor. In my town, we really only have two and one is much more VBAC friendly than the other. So I chose him and he was great. He said I had, you know, a really high chance of delivering the way I wanted to and that he didn't see anything stopping us at the time. So I hired Dula again. Um, I saw a Webster certified chiropractor a few times a month, pretty much throughout my whole pregnancy, I saw her. And, you know, it was a very textbook pregnancy. There was no signs that would indicate anything would happen. So then I found out towards the end of my pregnancy that my doctor was going on vacation. Um, and he was going to be gone from when I was 39 weeks to 41 weeks. So I knew at that point that my chances of a VBAC, you know, it was very discouraging knowing he wasn't going to be there. But my doula kind of calmed me down because the doctor who was going to be on call for him was the other VBAC friendly doctor in our town. So, you know, that kind of helped me out a little bit. So I knew that I was going to be delivering with the other doctor. Um, I had met him before whenever I had my miscarriage. So I, I did vaguely know him. So I was just going to wait and see what would happen. You know, I knew going in that I wasn't going to be induced. You know, my doctor was giving me until 42 weeks. So we were just planning on it, just riding it out until I went into labor naturally. At 40 weeks exactly, at 12 a.m., I went into labor. I guess early labor is what you'd say. My contractions started. But they were coming on really, really strong. And they had always said, you know, if they're more, if, if you're getting them less than five minutes apart, come in um, because you are a VBAC candidate. So it's, we want to monitor you a little bit more. So we went into the hospital, you know, after only a few hours of contractions, and I was only one centimeter. <laughs> so we walked around. We got to about two or three centimeters, and they were like, we will keep you. But at that time, it was overnight. So at our hospital, we have a hospitalist who sees you until, I guess, early morning hours when you would see your regular doctor, as long as everything's kind of going as planned and smooth. So the hospitalist kept us, and I continued to progress pretty well. I mean, very slow, you know, by about the 12-hour mark. I think I was five or six centimeters, but it was still so much faster than with my son, with my previous pregnancy. Everything was going well. You know, my, the doctors I had were a little bit more VBAC tolerant versus, you know, 
okay with it, but they were letting me do what I wanted to do and labor on my own. We kind of just waited it out. You know, I ended up getting an epidural, but that helped progress me a little bit. And they would just turn me every two hours and, you know, they were doing minimal checks and everything was going smooth until about 2 a.m. I was about eight centimeters. They had just checked me. The nurse and ethicist had come in to redose my epidural and my water broke. We were so, my husband and I just laughed. Like we were so excited because I finally felt like it was going, it was happening. I was getting my V back. My body was doing what it needed to do. I was on the right path, you know, and we knew that at about eight centimeters, you know, if your water breaks, I mean, it's going to progress pretty quickly. So we knew our baby was coming. And then about eight to 10 minutes after my water broke, nurses just like swarmed into my room. I mean, we probably had eight or 10 in there and they, they couldn't find my baby's heartbeat. So um, they were trying to get me on all fours to kind of reposition me and see if it was just a positional thing or, or what, you know, and that's very hard when you've had an epidural and can't move. I had people, you know, touching me in all kinds of places, trying to turn me over. And my doula had actually left. Um, she had taken a little bit of break because it was in the middle of the night. Like we were progressing, but it was slow, you know, so we were going to call her because she lived right by the hospital. But so right. this is Which, all can happening. I just, can I just say, I'm gonna uh-huh. you, that's a really awesome thing for you to have done. Um, a lot of doulas burn out um, and they get so exhausted. Yeah. So like they'll be there for a really long time, but then when things are moving slow and they're not as necessary, it's a really good idea to send your doula home or send her somewhere to go rest. So that's really, really oh, good. I mean, for my first one, she was with us the whole time. She was a saint. I mean, yep. she was literally with us for 40 something hours. Um, right. And doulas will power through. the room to eat. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was really happy. She my doula this time had a few breaks, um, but she was always, you know, a phone call away she, and she lived so close that, you know, it didn't really, it didn't matter if she left for a little bit because no one was expecting me to have this baby super fast, you know? So the hospitalist comes in and it's like he had been sleeping all night. Okay. He's very slow with his speech and he's like, there seems to be a problem. We're not quite sure what, and I'm like, okay, you need to get my baby out if you can't find the heartbeat, you know? And so thank God my stand-in doctor, the on-call doctor, was he has monitors at his house, and he also lives right near the hospital. And for whatever reason, at 2 a.m. on this Saturday morning, he was awake and looking at the monitors. So before the nurses even had a chance to call him and tell him that something was wrong, he was already in his car on the way to the hospital. So he like burst into my room. It's literally something out of a movie. And him and this other doctor, the hospitalist, are kind of like arguing over what to do. Because from what I remember, the hospitalist was like, we're going to cut you. We're going to get the baby out right here in the room. And the on-call doctor was like, no, you're not. Like the OR is right down the hall. And so they're kind of arguing. The nurses are just, you know, unplugging everything from the bed and trying to wheel me out of the room. Because at that point, they... They were, they, they were able to detect a heartbeat at one point, but it was only 30. So they, they, were, they were thinking that my uterus had ruptured. Yeah, um, both a, doctors kind of agreed on that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then they couldn't find it after that, you know. So um, they, were, they, were, they were basically screaming at me that it was a uterine rupture, and I'm thinking this is all my fault. You know, I uh, did this. I could have just oh. had an easy C-section, but I chose oh. to do this. Because, you know, prior to this happening earlier in the day, 
that was all every time the doctors would come mm-hmm. in, even talk the VBAC friendly it. one, you know, they were, yes, they would talk about it. Well, this is a risk. Are you sure you don't want to just have a section? Are you sure you don't want to have a little bit of Pitocin? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so I go in thinking that this, this, my baby has died. How am I supposed to tell my four-year-old that we're, we don't have a baby anymore? You know, I mean, it was chaos. There was cursing not by me, (laughs) by the doctors and the staff, because I guess things just weren't falling into place as quickly as they wanted to. But they were finally able to put me under. And of course, I don't know what happened after that. But the doctor did tell me that he, from the time I was put out until my baby was out, it was only 43 seconds. So they were able to get her out super quickly. And she was good. She was fine. Her APGARs were, you know, the highest they could be. And she was okay, and now we know that the cord was wrapped around her neck twice, mm. which is why, um, which is why her heartbeat was so low. And they're saying that while my water, before my water had broken, she had all that cushion um, to kind of bounce off. And so once my water had broken, the the cord was just too tight. There was nothing for her to kind of float around in. So that's why it happened right after my water broke. Yeah, that makes sense. I was going to say a lot of the times, you know, it's it's like there's a floodgate opening, right? So, like, they're in this, mm-hmm. like, nice little hot tub, and then, like, this floodgate opens, and they move, and they, like, water comes out, and so it could have just gotten too tight. And how that Did they yeah. try to change you positions or anything, or was it just kind of like, we're going? They did. That's when they tried to get me on all fours before the doctor had come in the room. Oh, oh okay. Um, but because I, I had an epidural, it was it's just too hard. so hard to move. Yeah. And, and they didn't really get any good tracing. They, they didn't get a good response from that. You know, mm-hmm. um, they couldn't find the baby's heartbeat and they tried, you know, um, checking me just to, to make sure the cord hadn't prolapsed too, you know, because that could have been one of the issues they said, but that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, so but she was, you know, she was fine. My doula wasn't there. So, you know, my husband, poor thing, um, he was by himself for that part. Thankfully, she. He, I told him as they're wheeling me into the, uh, to the OR, I'm like, call, call her, you know, get her to come. You need someone here with you because I, I didn't know how he would be either, you know, especially if, if my baby hadn't made it. He did say, though, that he was able to hear her cry because he was standing outside the door. So, like, you know, it seems like it took forever in the OR, but he said it, it literally once. He, I was in there. It took maybe five or so minutes. They put me under and all of that, and then he was able to hear her cry. So he knew at that point that she was okay. We didn't know if she was a girl or a boy at that point. So it was, you know, we didn't get our our moment of her coming out and being put Your on my chest and being able to together. Yes. Yeah. Um, which we were so looking forward to because that was kind of the incentive for a bag too. You know how exciting to have your baby and not even know if it was a girl or a boy, and then to be able to, you know, look. So he found out via a picture. Mm. The nurse, you know, came and got his phone and took some pictures for him. And I found out when I was wheeled into the room, there was a little pink hat on her head. So I knew it was a girl at that point. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And how long did it take for you to kind of come back to and be, like, present again? Honestly, I think it was less than an hour. I I was in the um, recovery room by three. She was born at two. And by three, I was in the recovery room, which it 
basically the amount of time it took for my son as well. Normal you know, when C-section, they were yeah. For him. yeah. Yeah, it was like a normal C-section. He was actually able to cut on my old C-section scar. So, you know, he didn't, everything was pretty textbook as far as, instead, of, you know, it was a lot faster of a C-section. But um, right. as far as post-C-section, everything was kind of textbook. You know, I was in the room about an hour after, you know, nursing her, and she was doing so good. So, I mean, that part was kind of, you know, normal, if if you want to call it that. (laughs) Good. Yeah, and so I want to kind of talk about, you know, really that difference of, so there's emergency C-sections, and then there's, like, true, true emergent crash C-sections. And you had a crash C-section. You know, one of the Mm -hmm. first indicator of a crash C-section is if they have to knock you out, and there's no time to even talk and discuss or do anything like that, and you know, baby's out in, what did you say, 43 seconds? Mm-hmm. 43 um, seconds. Yeah, like that is, that is a true crash C-section. A lot of times with crash C-sections, um, babies are, or not babies, <laughs> partners are not allowed to be there either because there's just no time and there's so much happening that they just don't even have time to allow that person in. And so, you know, emergent, and obviously like fetal heart tones is, one of the biggest reasons for a crash C-section, you know, really heart, low heart D cells that are, cannot be even recovered or found. Obviously like it's a very scary situation and we want to get baby out. And so that's what they did. They um, rushed and sound like they did a really good job rushing and we're so glad that she was okay. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it was very scary and um, still it's very hard to even talk about. I was so grateful though we have a great perinatal mental health specialist in town that four days post delivery I saw her for the first time um, and saw her every two weeks for a few months and then I went every month and I still see her you know now we talk more about like you know husband and and children issues but for a long time we just talked about the birth you know and trying to help me to just realize that it was okay to have those feelings of sadness because even in the hospital talking to my nurses because I I was very tearful all the time and they were just like but she's here she's okay and um and and that's true a lot but right yeah I was also mourning kind of the birth that I didn't get to experience And, and I'm so happy that my little girl was okay and you know I would do anything you know I would go back and have another crash section just to have her healthy but it was still you know after preparing and feeling like I am a great candidate for VBAC. It's going to happen. I didn't really set myself up for what if it doesn't happen, you know? So I guess that's one reason I wanted to share my story too, because for nine months or even longer than nine months, you know, even before I got pregnant, VBAC was what was going to happen. And I had no doubt about that. And so that was one of the things we've worked on a lot in counseling too, is like, it was okay to have those feelings, but it's okay to, that it didn't go the way I wanted it to, you know, or the way I expected it to. Yeah, I agree. Uh I think it's so important. That's one of the reasons why we like to share all these different types of stories and different birth outcomes, because while uterine rupture is incredibly rare and and a catastrophic rupture is, is even more rare than that, it still happens. And when you're the one in however many hundred or thousand it might as well be 100% chance for you because that's that's what's, what your story is and that's what's happened to you. Mm-hmm. And we're grateful that yours didn't end up in a uterine rupture. But 
there's still that trauma there in that moment where the 43 seconds, or I guess you were under, and then after that, yeah. it was 43 seconds. But the minutes leading up to that 43 seconds probably feel like an eternity, and there's a whole lot of stuff there to process. And, you know, when they're putting you in the ER, in the OR, I mean, you know, you're having to switch over beds real quick, and that you can't move because they're they're trying to get you all set up, and you're just, mm-hmm. I mean, you're literally laying there naked because they're just there in a rush. You know, they're throwing betadine on you and cleaning you up and, and mm-hmm. getting you ready. So all of those things while you're sitting there kind of trying to think you're, think through it, you know, and think, you're thinking the worst of what's going to happen and how are you going to tell people and how are you going to tell your little ones at home. It was just the worst thoughts, you know. Right. And yeah. then my doctor, the doctor came in the next day and said, oh, well, you did have a uterine window. Yeah. And I'm like, gosh, like, That's first of all, <laughs> then we really need to talk about that. <laughs> Yeah. You know, that because that had nothing to do with my delivery at all. A I lot of people her, have so uterine r- windows. Yeah. Megan well, I've heard you can even have one if you've never had a C-section. Had a C-section. Yeah. Absolutely. First-time moms, <laughs> a lot of first-time moms probably have them, and they would never know if they didn't have, you know, weren't yeah. open. Yeah. It's yeah, really. So he's telling me that, and he's basically telling me that because he's like, look, you're never going to have a vaginal birth. and. And I don't know if we'll have another child. I, th- I think we're good, you know. But um, just the, I'm like, I just had a baby 12 hours ago. You don't need to be telling me this. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, my provider told me that on the table. Oh, my like, gosh. On, during my C-section, yeah. he told me he was so happy that I didn't be back because I for sure would have ruptured and that I oh, had this uterine window. And I'm just like, oh, geez. Like, <laughs> we're not but fans the, of what, he, what he doesn't understand <laughs> is what that did to me mm-hmm. for my next birth. Like it stuck with me. Right. And you're like, I just had a baby. Can I just focus on this for this very moment? (laughs) You know, exactly. Because even if we choose to have another one or, you know, or or blessed to have another one, I'd probably worried my whole pregnancy that, Oh gosh, I have a uterine window. Like even if I wasn't trying for a V back, you know, I'd probably be okay. I could rupture at any moment. You know, I just, (laughs) some things I guess just don't need to be said. Right. Yeah. It is right. And I think that providers just sometimes don't realize the impact that their words have on these pregnant people. And I think sometimes it comes out of just misinformation. They just don't know. (laughs) And, you know, these guys are, they're surgeons. They've done, most obstetricians have done hundreds, thousands of C-sections perhaps, and seen a lot of really abnormal things. And I can't imagine that it will be would be comfortable for somebody doing a C-section to see a uterine window and like see through the uterus. That would probably be really hard. You no, know, it would be. It would probably be like, wow. Well, well, this. Well, it's a good thing we're doing this C-section because this uterus is really thin. Yeah. Like it's just kind of. I think it's more like of a defensive mechanism, kind of sub a subconscious, like primal thing that seeing that is scary. And there's not a lot of information i mean there's no information there's no way to tell if a uterine rupture or a uterine window would happen or not would, leads to a rupture there's just no way because you would have to know if the uterine window was there before the rupture happened and you can't do that unless you have a c-section and so I, there's just no evidence at all and so you just kind of have to assume and when you make assumptions is where you get misinformation and misguided yeah. providers and 
I just, it's really frustrating, but um, I wanted to tell a quick story. I had a, a client who had a crash cesarean and oh my gosh, there's so much stuff I want to talk about. And it's like all in our course, my mind's going in like all these different tangents, right? Like epidural placement, crash cesarean, emergency cesareans, <laughs> like all like preparing mentally for a different outcome, all of these things. But I want to talk about my experience. So I had a client and she had a two vessel cord. So normally the umbilical cord has three vessels, two going in and one going out. Hers only had one going in and one going out of the cord, which usually it's not a problem, right? And usually the cord around the neck is not a problem, right? Most of the time you just slip the cord off the neck as the baby comes out and every, everything's fine. But sometimes it is a problem like in your case. And it turns out in my client's case, she was perfect, going along perfectly in her VBAC and everything was fine. And she was pushing for two hours so much. She just could not get baby past the pubic bone. And she finally decided she wanted an epidural so that she could get some rest, like in rest and descend and let the body do some work on its own. Well, she can just get, get some much needed rest. And the anesthesiologist came in and she was pushing and she finally got baby past the pubic bone. But the anesthesiologist was there getting ready to do the epidural. And then by this time, the OBGYN had come in because she was with the midwife and the baby's heart rate was like super tachycardic. So like 60 beats per minute, 240 beats per minute, 180, 40 beats per minute, 90. I mean, it was like up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. Oh, it was wow. just so crazy, like all over the place. So baby was under a lot of stress. And then the OB said, um, how long is it going to take you to get an epidural? to where we could do an episiotomy because once the baby's past the pubic bone, like down to plus one station, not an episiotomy, I'm sorry, forceps delivery. And he's like, well, probably like 20 minutes. She's like, I don't have 20 minutes. I have two minutes. And so they, because, and then once she said that everything changed, they, they dosed up her IV, they flattened the bed out. They wheeled her down to the OR. It was like, it was like, okay, this baby is not doing well. And now we need to get the baby out. There's no time for an epidural. There's no time for anything else. We need to get the baby out now. And so they rushed everybody. It was like busy chaos, exactly like you said. Everyone was rushing around. Everybody flooded into the room. Me and the birth photographer and, and the birth partner just like stepped back and got out of the way. And they rushed her away. And, and the baby was born three minutes later after the, the obstetrician had said, I only have two minutes, right? Well, and Wow. It ended up being three minutes, but like, I'm sure that she was just throwing out like a, like a short amount of time, but yeah. it was a good call because baby was born with an APGAR of zero. Like literally they had to resuscitate him. Oh, wow. Um, his two minute APGAR was five. He was in the NICU for six weeks. I mean, there's a lot of crazy stuff and it was not a uterine rupture. It's just the two vessel cord and the cord was round, wrapped around his neck twice. And so once he got past that pubic bone, all the pressure mm -hmm. was just super restrictive and he wasn't getting oxygen. And that's a crash cesarean. I, baby needs to be out in minutes, minutes and seconds even matter. And that's why we just kind of laugh at the just in case epidural, because even if an epidural is dosed and turned on in order to get it up to a dose where you wouldn't feel it during surgery it would take 20 ish, 20 to 30 minutes. Even if it's already turned on, if it's not turned on, it could well, take up to 40 minutes. And so if you only have two or three minutes to get the baby out, you're going to have to be put under whether you have the epidural in or not. Exactly. Yeah. See, I had asked my doctor that at one of my appointments because I was going to try to go without an epidural. And I said, okay, well, if, if I go without, though, what happens if I end up needing a section? He said, 
if you need a section that quickly, he said it'll be a crash section and you're going to be put under regardless. So he said, do not make up your mind on whether or not you want an epidural on that, you know, on the basis of a section or not. He said, if you yeah. want to get it, you know, for pain management, don't get it because you think, okay, well, what if something happens and I need a section? Yeah, um, well, and if it isn't... Now a I know that... <laughs> Well, if it's a true emergency, this is where people get confused, right? So the medical definition of a crash cesarean is baby has to get out now. We can't wait. We can't do anything. We need to knock mama out, cut baby out as soon mm -hmm. as possible. Okay. That's a crash cesarean. Emergency cesarean is, oh gosh, oh, baby's not looking that great. Oh, she's only four centimeters. Let's call the OR and, you know, Let's get call the, it on OR, the Get the anesthesiologist down. Oh, he's in another surgery. So you're going to have to wait 30 minutes. That's an emergency cesarean. But People, when you hear the word emergency, it's, it's not a good word. It's not a good thing. Emergency equals yeah. bad in our minds, right? And so an emergency cesarean really just means, oh, we don't think baby's going to come out vaginally, and so we need to get it out through a cesarean. And in that case, you know, if there's time to wait, then there's time to get a spinal block, which takes just mm -hmm. five minutes to, to take effect. It's much different than an epidural. It wears off a lot quicker too, which is why they don't just, why it's not their first go-to, but spinal block takes effect rather quickly and you can still, you know, have your cesarean in 30 to 40 minutes at, with a spinal block. And then of course we have planned cesareans, which is, which are scheduled. So you have your scheduled cesarean and then your emergency cesarean, which is not an emergency. It just means, oh, well, we don't think baby's going to come out vaginally yeah. Or maybe there is, yeah, yeah, or maybe like there's problems like mom has a fever or there's preeclampsia or uncontrollable or pressure, <laughs> et cetera, swollen cervix, et cetera, right? And then crash cesarean is, all right, this is an emergency. There's a risk to life of mom or baby. Baby has to come out right now and that, that's where seconds matter. And I think it's important for people to know the difference, not that any one is worse than the other, but, you know, some nurses and doctors don't even, don't even know that. I've I had some doctors come into my room because... My real, my regular doctor was on vacation. I had, you know, a stand-in doctor every day, and they would call it an emergency section often. You know, it was so close and so fresh in my mind. I'd, ha I'd correct them every time. I was like, no, it was a crash section. You know, that's that's different. And um, the fact that they call it the emergency section over and over, I was just like, gosh, y'all, <laughs> it wasn't just an emergency. You know, it didn't feel like that, at least to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, significant difference. Very big difference. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. But before we forget, we want to ask you our questions that we had tried to remember to ask people. Well, and I actually want to share one more thing. <laughs> oh, okay. Really go ahead. Fast. Sorry. Yeah, really, really fast. Totally. I do want to get to our questions too. But we actually have a blog that I actually believe... Julie wrote that blog. I'm trying to remember who wrote it, but it's, um, it's healing after a birth that didn't go the way that you wanted to and how, yeah, how to how, cope when you don't get cope. your V back. That's yeah, what how it's to cope called. When I you just don't... barely linked to it yeah. in the blog I'm writing right now. <laughs> so how to cope when you don't get your V back. And then there's healing from birth trauma, coping after a difficult birth experience. So we have two different blogs that may benefit you if you are in this situation as well. So go check it out. It's at the vbacklink.com slash blog. And we've got oodles and oodles of blogs in addition to that. But those are two specific that I thought. Oodles and oodles. Yeah, that it. kind of related to this awesome story. So yeah. anyway, yeah. Well, and there's a the search questions. bar on the blog. So you can just oh, go yeah. in and search mm -hmm. for whatever you want, really. But 
just search, enter the search term you're looking for um, on mobile. I think it's at the bottom sometimes. We should probably get that fixed. But yes. if you're on a desktop, it's on the right side. You just click on the blog page and it'll pop up there for you. Yes, 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 yes. And then we do, we ask questions we always forget to ask. So we're excited that, oh, I'm excited that Julie remembered. <laughs> um, one of them is, what is a secret lesson or something no one really talks about that you wish you would have known ahead of time when preparing for birth? Do you remember what you answered or do you um, want to answer something random too? We have what you answered if you want us to read it or you could just whatever. I don't even, I wrote that so long ago because, you know, we had to reschedule a few times. Um, I don't even remember what I put. (laughs) So you actually just said that you wish you had prepared yourself for the possibility that you would have had to have a C-section and you were so positive that you would have had a V-back that you didn't think of any other complications. And I think that is such a big and powerful tip um, or secret lesson as we're calling it, because there's a lot of times where people, like even with birth plans, right? Like they write their birth plan and they're like, this is how my birth's going to go. And then birth doesn't necessarily go that way. And it's actually a lot of trauma for them because they had only prepared for this one way. So yeah, I, that's why we think, this is why we believe hearing stories like seaback stories and uterine ruptures and things like that. Like they're really good to hear. They're scary to hear when you're preparing sometimes, but like they're so beneficial in so many ways. So um, yeah. And then let's see, what is your best tip for someone preparing for a VBAC? Like, I think it would you? just be to, like I said, have an open mind. You know, it, labor never goes really how you plan, but definitely have a very pro VBAC team, you know, a doula, um, your doctor, just go in knowing that it, it may not go the way you want to, but it's okay. And there's so many resources after that can help you, you know, like my counselor and my husband was a big support system and just making sure that you have a good support system, whether it's family or, or otherwise, you know. Definitely. I love that. I love it. Yeah, yeah that's great, a great, great tip. tip. Okay. All right. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much again for sharing your story. We love it. We love you. And thanks for being with us. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to the vbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.